0: Hello and welcome to the Point of Care Ultrasound Certification Academy podcast where we focus on POCUS. Here we will discuss all things related to Point of Care Ultrasound, the practice, the trends, and its impact on healthcare. Our program will engage thought leaders who are defining global patient care with the stethoscope of the future. Hey, James Day here, recording live from the Focus on Pocus studios outside snowy Philadelphia today. Today, we have Dr. Kevin D. Evans as our honored guest, and Dr. Evans received his undergraduate and graduate degrees at The Ohio State University. Dr. Evans' doctoral degree was focused on geriatrics and gerontology. He has extensive clinical practice experience, having managed and worked as a sonographer, vascular technologist and radiographer for 25 years. Dr. Evans is a tenured professor at the Ohio State University College of Medicine in the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences and works as a researcher educator. He is the chair of Radiologic Sciences and Respiratory Therapy Division and is the director of laboratory for investatory imaging. Dr. Evans established his own research lab in 2005 and is conducting extramural funded research into the use of image analysis and sonographic contrast agents to enhance the detection of muscle skeletal disorders. In 2010, Dr. Evans received funding from the Centers of Disease Control's National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health as the principal investigator for carpal tunnel syndrome in an animal model. Dr. Evans has had sustained funding for over the last 10 years that represents 10 to 35% of his salary. He has successfully secured $3 million in R-level and foundation funding. Dr. Evans has served as the chair of ARDMS, chair of ARDMS Breast Foundation, president of the Society of Diagnostic Medical Sonographers, and of the SDMS Educational Foundation. Dr. Evans serves as the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Diagnostic Medical Sonography. Dr. Evans has over 100 publications that span journal articles, abstracts, multiple textbook chapters, and his own textbook. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Evans, thank you for being here today.
1: Thank you, James, for inviting me. I'm really excited to talk about simulation because that's something that I'm currently doing a lot of research, um, sort of, I guess, classified as educational research, about the effects of simulation and the and how it will help to people become better at uh, their scanning skills. So I'm anxious to talk about this topic.
0: You know, that's great because I worked for five years in a sim center here in Philadelphia and uh, also trained uh, residents and medical students in point of care. So this is great. I budgeted and kept up and worked with many simulator companies and uh, way from, you know, latex task trainers to the big surgical simulators. So, uh, what do you see as the role of educational simulation playing in the training of sonographers and sonologists?
1: Well, I think, you know, what I've noticed over my years as uh, uh, teaching sonography is that you can, um, you know, spend a lot of money, let's just be honest, with some types <laughs> of equipment. And then you can also use some things which I consider to be sort of homemade items. I just don't think that you have to let money um be the guiding principle for um, kind of helping to get simulation started in your educational process. Mm-hmm. So, I've done both. I've used both high tech and low tech sort of items um but I really think that the student is the is the you know receiver of the information. So, uh, sometimes it's dependent on what the student feels most comfortable with and I've noticed that some students, you know, flourish with you know sort of high tech items, but then I also sort of see them doing very well with sort of low-tech items too. So I just feel like sometimes educators feel that the cost or price points keep them from, you know, integrating simulation into their sort of classroom. And I would just push back on that because I think there's lots of ways to allow simulation to occur, and price really shouldn't be the thing that, you know, keeps that from happening.
0: You know, that's true. I remember there was a whole suite of surgical simulators and everything from bronchoscopy to small general surgery. and uh, there, But there was also, the surgical students would just do some basic latex suturing. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're right, the high and low combination. Do you think that develops good hand-eye coordination? As, and how, what about image recognition?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, what simulation really brings to the forefront is it allows the student or the learner to really have um, reflective time with their scanning, because often Mm -hmm. when we just require that people learn to scan on a a volunteer or a patient, um, that can be sometimes very distracting, and, you know, that distraction you know, inadvertently from a patient or a volunteer sort of cuts into that uh, process for the learner. So when you go to, you know, more of a simulation model, that distraction is completely removed. And the student or learner can just very much focus on their hand-eye coordination, which for, you know, using sonography skills is extremely important because, it's all about using the hand and being able to see images and adjust with the hand by what you're seeing. And let's face it, I think just like any sort of sport, I mean, it comes through practice. So the more practice time that we can give a person, um, I think they develop those psychomotor skills a little, you know, they refine them and become mm-hmm. more adept at doing it. I've noticed over my years of teaching that I have people that I call the natural scanners. (laughs) They can place a probe on a a model or a, a phantom, and they immediately get pictures. And I think, wow, how gifted are they? And so in the beginning of having them as students, they definitely outshine some of the other folks. Then you have the folks that I sort of call slow to go yeah <laughs> and they you know put the probe data, they really struggle. And what I've seen over time, though, if you allow that to just sort of play out, the slow to go folks end up in the same place as the natural scanners. everybody, if you're providing a you know a variety of events and and uh, educational activities, everybody ends up at the same place. So it's gratifying to know that the slow to go folks will get those psychomotor skills mastered and sometimes I have to sort of caution the natural scanners to slow down mm-hmm. because they're going so quickly that they are not really actually visualizing some of the things that are happening. So so I think it's coaching both, you know, to slow down the natural scanner as well as to, you know, reassure and sort of bolster that slow to go uh, person so that their psychomotor skills, you know, end up in the same place. I have to admit, I think I personally was a slow to go Mm -hmm. scanner. Yeah. So people laugh at me when I say that. But I, but I will be, you know, very honest and, and put it straight out there because I want people to know that the slow-to-go folks can be highly successful. And uh, sometimes uh, the natural scanners, I, I, uh, you know, say to myself, I wish that was me because I don't always feel like I can place the probe and get the image that I, you know, have in my mind. But uh, I will work and work until I get that. And sometimes I think that's that's sort of the right mindset to have.
0: You know, I think you're right. I I think this, you know, medicine is art and science, and this is definitely more on the art column. Uh And it's also like uh, it reminds me of tennis or golf. You have to do it a lot to get really good, and then you have to. It's like uh, also analogous to freeform jazz. You know, it's it's not like classical music where you read the notes Uh right off the paper. And that's funny you say that, because it's so true. If you have a group of students, you have the people with hands, and then you have the people in the middle. And then you actually have one or two that just, I don't even know if they can get the 2D imaging and translate it to 3D. So uh-huh. the, I guess the question that kind of I was going to ask you is, um, so wh- what do you think about using models or uh, phantoms that don't have any specific pathology, just normal scans? if or, or you use some that you can dial in the pathology?
1: Well, again, it's about, you know, whether you have both high or low tech sort of, um, you know, simulation sort of items. But I I personally think, you know, it doesn't matter, again, about what you're using. I think it's very important to have a series of normal image patterns that the learner can memorize because um, we have a tendency to feel like we need to show a lot of pathology constantly, to the folks that are learning. And I really push back on that too. I think it's very, very important for that visual memory to have a lot of, I would just even say, a file of photos in their head that are all normal. Mm -hmm. Because when that texture or that liver pattern that's normal is, is in their mind, as they begin to scan the real patient and they before them something that doesn't match what's in their memory, it immediately says there's an abnormality. So I really focus a lot with the simulation um, not only developing a hand-eye, but also helping them to me- to get those you know images into their memory of normal. And I, I guess the term that I like to use is symmetry, because mm-hmm. That that idea that you have in your mind the normal and you're seeing something that doesn't match, there's an asymmetry between what you thought you were going to see and what you're actually seeing. And then that honestly makes the person who's doing the examination slow down. And they mentally think, well, why does this not look like what I was expecting to see? But if they don't have those images sort of filed in their memory then they go skipping by things because it looks normal to them. So I think it's so critical that students have a, a catalog, if you will, of normal images in their in their mind's eye so that if they begin to work, there is this immediate like uh, alarm that goes off in their mind going, whoa, this mm-hmm. is not matching with what I was expecting. And I often tell students when I visit them in their clinical sites I will say to them you know you know when you go into the room what do you expect to see before we see this patient together what are you expecting to see because what I'm trying to get at is what is in your you know what in your memory what have you got filed away so that when we begin scanning I'm going to have a sense whether you're going to see something that's asymmetric or not And if they don't have anything in their mind about what they're about to scan, then, you know, problems could begin to happen. So I think it's really important for educators to not want to rush to getting all that pathology, but really help the the novice um, person learning to scan to get all those normal images filed away in their memory. So important.
0: I think you're right. I think you hit on something that not a lot of trainers or Instructors do. You have that normal picture in your mind, and it puts me in mind of uh, you know the little hocus pocus in the Sunday paper cartoon where you have let's say a little boy playing baseball. You look at that image for a long time, and then you look at the one to the right, and you got to find five things that are wrong with it. If you don't, <laughs> <laughs> if you don't have that first one, and you go, right. okay, now the kid's not got a bat or a glove on, and then you then you know something's amiss. So that. You know, you're right because they do rush to dial in pathology and use all the simulators and all the toys that they have at their sim center and medical school so speak- yeah, I think one of the yeah. things, Go ahead.
1: one of the things we we've done is um, again like I say we do emphasize a lot of normal scanning for mm-hmm. the novice but that doesn't preclude us from bringing a simulator to the classroom right and so you know many of the, the high-tech simulators you know have 250 abnormal cases, or whatever. So often, you know, a student will probably go through their whole experience and never have seen a particular live image of an abnormality. But in a classroom, you can give a demonstration on a simulator that shows that particular pathology. So a demo is highly informative to the student. A student can get up on the break and come up and scan that abnormality on the break of the lecture or whatever's happening. So it, it you know, it's not that you don't have the options to infuse abnormal simulation sort of activities, but I think there's just this propensity for having students scanning all of this stuff. And I just think, you know, the emphasis should be at least for the novice on the normal first and then Recognition can happen in lecture or lab for some of those abnormalities.
0: Yeah, that is a good point. And I've seen a lot of integrated uh, sonography programs in med schools. Uh, some schools start from the top down. They wait till residency, which I, I don't think builds on skills. Uh, all of a sudden, I have residents, and they have to—they don't know how to turn the machine on. Um, that's extreme. But if it started in M1 or M2. What do you do, like, how do you integrate that into your uh, medical school training curriculum?
1: Well, Ohio State, we have, uh, you know, all of our uh, medical students um, go through, of course, probably like everyone else, modules. Mm -hmm. And those modules that they um, come to the Sim Center to do scanning are, you know, matched to whatever their lecture content. So currently, we just finished the cardiac block. And so I went over and we had about five stations and Dr. David Boehner and I were like proctoring that along with some of the, um, you know, the residents from emergency medicine. And we had stations and we had both low and high tech sort of items and medical students sort of walked up and we began by asking them, what do you remember from the lecture series? Because again... (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. it's sort of helping them to think about how do you integrate what you heard and what you saw in lecture to what we're about to do, you know, in the lab. And sometimes we would begin just by scanning the heart and then saying, can you name all the chambers? I mean, some of it's very simple. And then we got into sort of like here, give, you know, where is the mitral valve, you know, on the on the echocardiogram. And then after we've done some image recognition with live scanning, we gave them the probe. Now see if you can make this picture. So, um, and some students, you know, who are really thinking this is something they're gonna use in their practice, step right up and wanna try. Um, But I still think some that stand back are also getting, you know, they're getting some benefit from that experience too. But um, I think the biggest challenge is the number of medical students that come through those labs and trying to give everybody more than two or three minutes with hands-on experience. So it's sort of a numbers game with medical students, but Mm -hmm. the fact that we're already in integrating this, even at the med one step, I think is just fantastic. And even if they just come through the four years with a greater appreciation for what ultrasound can show them, whether they can actually do that themselves or not, I think is just it really is gonna exponentially help patients and also make them a better sort of team player. Yeah. So I I wholeheartedly support, you know, the integration of sim and ultrasound and ultrasound lecture in medical school education. I, I, I think it's gonna pay us huge dividends.
0: Absolutely. And wow. You got Dr. Evans and Dr. Boehner at The Ohio State University. Man, that is like a – that's a talent monster there, man. They're going to really, really train your uh, students, and that's great. Um, uh, Another question I was going to ask you guys is, um, you know, do you guys – I'm sure you do the flip classroom. You know, it's not about the didactic so much. It's the hands-on mostly. Yeah, I mean, a flip
1: classroom to me is about students sort of moving to the front of the room and mm-hmm. instructors moving sort of to the back of the room, and ah. that I think in some ways has to be carefully planned because um, I think there's a misnomer that you know instructors get to sit down and students just present, and I I would again push back on that because for me a flipped classroom is designing activities where students um, you know are actively in the front of the room and the instructor is definitely moving toward the back of the room, but definitely um, it's a lot of pre-work orchestrating that session and providing topics and or cases to the students before they arrive. Mm -hmm. And then uh, knowing each of the cases that will be presented. So as an instructor, I can ask questions, get the students to discuss, so there really is a lot of pre-planning and on-the-spot sort of guidance that has to happen in a flip classroom. Um, it's not as easy as it looks, but I, I sometimes yeah. giggle because I think to myself, <laughs> well, the students think I'm getting a day off, and absolutely I am not, because not only have I done a lot of work to, you know, to design the session, but I'm on my feet, sort of tap dancing in the room with them because. I don't know what they're going to say. I don't know what kind of questions they're going to ask. So Mm -hmm. I have to be super prepared to make sure that, you know, that things stay on track and also that we stay on time for the class period. So um, I I love Flip Classroom, but it definitely is a lot of pre-work and sort of programming, at least in my mind, to make it successful.
0: You know, I've I've been to certain things where there's a, Conferences or, or little workshops or a week-long thing, where it's about forty-five minute didactic and then 15, 20 minutes of scanning. And as a sonographer, I, I just know that that's not going to ever work. It should be turned around, like a, maybe a fifteen-minute didactic and then you know go to it because that's what it's about. As you you've said a couple of times.
1: Yeah, I just think whenever you stand in the front of the room and you're just lecturing,
0: yeah, that's... that honestly
1: is so, uh, it's like feeding little birds or something. I mean, <laughs> you just stand there like thinking that you are the expert and you are giving all this information to these little baby birds. And I, I think it's boring. I, I really yeah. don't think students like that. And so there is definitely there is a place for lecture because there is a certain amount of content that has to be sort of transmitted. However, I think, you know, saying at certain junctures in a lecture, so who all has scanned this in clinic? Who's had a patient who has this? Someone tell me what you saw or experienced. What were the patient's presentations? Letting them begin to talk as part of the lecture, I think helps to break it up. And also allow them to feel that they're in charge of some of their learning, which, um, again, it's hard because there's so much content that we feel that we need to cover. But, again, it's about that delivery style and making them take some. I'm very big about students taking ownership of their learning. And um, sometimes they've come through, you know, post-secondary sort of education where they just sat at a desk and it was just dumped into them. And I have to say, guys, you know, done, we're done with the dumping. You, <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. need to tell me. You know, I need to hear from you. What does any of this mean to you? So, um, yeah, I, yeah, I believe in it's an interactive classroom.
0: Sure, and it, uh, the retention of that fades over time, too. We know that if you're a lot of people are audio learners, visual learners, or haptic learners. So it, everyone's going to be different. Like you said, you have different talents in the room. Um, So you get them to optimize the SIM stations and sort of develop mindful practices while they're scanning. That's good. I like that. Well, listen, Doctor Evans. Wow, thanks. It was an honor to have you on the podcast.
1: Oh, I really enjoyed it, and uh, you know, I'd be happy to come back and talk about other topics too.
0: Yeah, you know, and I actually listened to your voice. I've met you at a conference now. Now I've put, <laughs> I've put a, a face with a vein, uh, a name. I finally, uh, I finally, was like, oh, I, I, I've, I've talked to Doctor Evans before. So it's an honor to have you, and thank you very much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast, Focus on Pocus. Be sure to tune in with us next week for more interviews with thought leaders that are on the forefront of global point-of-care ultrasound. Thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests and not those of Intelios. This podcast is for information purposes only.